Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, I am joined by Jeff Sturgis to discuss his perspective on patterning bucks during the rut and his process for dialing in a plan at all other times of year. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And we are wrapping up the month of patterning bucks. You heard about how I patterned a buck in early October. We talked to Mark Drury about his art form of patterning deer. We talked to Jake Bush about patterning deer on public land. And now we've got another mastermind, Mr. Jeff Sturgis. And if you're not familiar with Jeff, uh, he's been on the podcast a number of times. He's one of the best out there. He's written a number of terrific books on hunting mature deer and habitat management. He runs the Whitetail Habitat Solutions YouTube channel and website. He does consulting. He has online classes. He has so much incredible content helping folks find deer, pattern deer, hunt deer, manage for deer, improve deer habitat, all this kind of stuff. Jeff is is truly um, I said, all right, he's a mastermind. He's one of the people I respect most in this uh, sphere. He's one of the folks I've learned the most from and uh, just really, really excited that he's here today to discuss this topic and to talk about patterning bucks during the rut, how we can do that here in the pre-rut at the end of October, how that plan needs to adjust as we move into November or wherever it is that you have you know, rutting activity, if that's January in Alabama or December in Texas, whatever. We'll talk about what a pattern during the rut might look like, how to do that, and then we actually just dive into the details of Jeff's entire process to patterning deer, whether that's in September or October, December, all points in between. We get into the nitty-gritty 
which I love doing with Jeff. We talk through how to use historical data and trends, history of what you've learned these deer do in the past. We talk about how he uses sign to put together the puzzle pieces. And of course, you can't talk about patterning deer without trail cameras. So we dive into that. He's got a really great mock scrape strategy that helps him get pictures and really get clear data inputs to make these plans. So that is, uh, that's what's in store for today. I'm excited when this podcast drops. It is the end of October. The rut is staring us right in the face. And man, I mean, is there any better time of year to be a deer hunter? This is what we dreamed of. We're about to uh, step foot into the Super Bowl, friends. This is uh, what we've worked for. This is what we've dreamed of. This is what we've planned for all these days out in the spring and summer. It's all led up to now. So uh, let's do this. How about you bear with me here for a couple simple kind of leading into the rut words of wisdom from your old friend, Mark Kenyon. Uh, Number one. You've heard me say this before. If you listen to the podcast, you've heard me say all of these things before. If you've listened to the podcast, but I want to, you know, touch on some of the greatest hits. If you are hunting over these next two, three, four weeks and you're in the rut and you personally get into a rut, if you find yourself like torn, you know, kind of confused, paralysis by analysis, stuck, not sure what's going on, not sure why you can't get on the deer, not sure why you can't find that buck. Uh, things aren't going the way you expected them to, and you're kind of stuck trying to figure out, what should I do? Remember, at that point in your trip, in your week, in your weekend, whatever it is, step back to the basics and remember the pillars of rut hunting success. Always go back to this. Whenever you're stuck, always go back to the pillars and think to yourself, well, does my plan fit into the pillars of rut hunting success? Number one, one of these pillars Hunt the does, either doe bedding areas or doe food sources in the evenings. If you're near one of those, if you're in it, if you're just downwind of it, that is always a great place to be during the rut. These are those locations where bucks are going to be traveling to. So are you in or near a doe hotspot? Number two, if you're not in one of those places, are you in or near a funnel? Something that concentrates deer movement. Maybe that's a thin piece of timber. Maybe that is a piece of high ground between two ponds and you've got like a bridge in between the two. Maybe this is a little, I don't know, ditch with brushy cover that goes between two big fields. Anywhere where that buck traffic, which is increased this time of year, anywhere that can be narrowed down into a narrow sliver, a smaller section is going to help you find a buck as they are traveling throughout the day, trying to find those does ready to breed. So that's number two, funnels. And then finally, number three, during the rut, Get your butt in one of those kinds of places and then give it time. Get out there for as many hours as you can during the morning, through the middle of the day if you can, through the evening. You got to be there for the magic to happen. That's it. There's so many other things we can talk about during the rut, but if you can always remember those three pillars, you're going to give yourself a good chance. And I want to give you one other thing. One other thing here when it comes to the mental side of the rut. Stuff's going to go wrong. Remember that. Accept that. Be ready for it. You're going to be thrown for a loop. Your plans are going to fall apart. Something bad's going to happen. You're going to miss. You're going to get lost in the woods. You're going to have trail cameras that don't work. You're going to have trespassers. You're going to have something. Be ready for that. And when it arrives, if you have already thought through these things, if you've already come to terms that there's going to be tough stuff ahead of you, you'll be better prepared to push through that stuff because now is when mental toughness kills deer. 
So be ready and just push on through. Grind on through the crap because good things always lay on the other side of those speed bumps. And finally, have fun. Enjoy this stuff. We've waited all year. We talk ourselves up. We, we dream about these moments. Like I said already, it's a shame if you let the rut arrive and then just stress out about it the whole time because you're out there all day and then you're miserable because you haven't taken a break or you're miserable because you haven't shot a deer yet or you're miserable because everybody else seems to be shooting a deer and you can't find a single buck. Whatever it is, try not to let that stuff ruin this thing for you. Keep it fun. This is about fun. Enjoy the process. And if you ever find yourself kind of leaning towards that overstress, I'm not enjoying this kind of feeling and vibe, that's a clear warning sign. Maybe you got to take a step back. Maybe you got to take a night off, take the family out to dinner. Maybe you need to go meet up with your hunting buddies and just get back to the community and camaraderie of this. Maybe you need to sleep in for one hour in the morning, get your head right, have a good breakfast, take your kids to school, remember why you do this thing, and then get back out there. Have fun. Be a human being. Push through the tough stuff. Stick to the principles. If you can do those things, my friends, it is going to be a great rut. And I think Jeff has got some other great advice for you as well today. I'm excited for you to tune in. I'm excited to hear from you all in the coming weeks. I hope we all have a lot of success stories to share. Uh, Speaking of that, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Wired2Hunt. If you want to see how my trips are going, I'm about to take off for the big one week in November trip. I'm going to be heading to uh, Nebraska and Ohio. So I can't wait to share those experiences along the way. Check them on out over on IG. And uh, I will have the stories here in the podcast as soon as I can as well. So. Without any further ado, let's get into today's show with Jeff Sturgis. All right, with me now, back on the show, is one of our all-time favorite guests, Mr. Jeff Sturgis. Jeff, thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Mark. It's always great chatting with you, and uh, it has been a long time. I don't remember how many times I've been on your podcast, but it, uh, I know the years have flown by. It's been, yeah. it's been a few years. It has been. I mean, you're one of the OGs, Jeff. Uh, I think that <laughs> I think you were within our first five episodes. If I'm if I'm thinking right, really? I think you were within those wow. first couple ever recorded. And I know you and I were talking and you know doing stuff even well before the podcast even started. So, um, oh I, yeah, yeah. Um, I think uh, well, the, my food plot book was 2014, and you wrote the forward for that. Yeah, so I forgot uh, about that. That was that was a little. That was eight years ago, just right there, and we had been talking you know, for years before then. Too. Yeah, man. Well, I've learned a ton from you and, uh, I, I've always appreciated you coming on here and I've, I always know this is going to be like one of our best of the year. Um, uh, maybe selfishly because I just love the way you think like you, you think about things, you process things, you approach things in a way that very much jives with, with me and how I like to go about it. You're, you're super analytical with it, which, which just fascinates me the way you go about it. And, and that is why I thought this series we're doing this month, that you would be one of the perfect people for it. So the series, as you know, we're, we're focusing all on patterning bucks. Like the month of October, everyone we've talked to has been all about patterning deer. And, and this one, Jeff, that we're going to do is going to drop at the end of October. So when people listening to this, time. yeah, it is. They'll, they'll be hearing this, you know, hopefully end of October or beginning of November. And I think there will be some people who might say patterning bucks. Well, it's November. Nobody can pattern a buck in November. And they might be 
thinking that this isn't for them at this point. So my question for you is this, to kick it off, Jeff, can you pattern a buck during the rut? Because a lot of people say you can't. Um, I sure do think you can. Now, you know, that being said, to me, they really lock into a core home home range um, from whether it's mid-October, end of October, and then all the way through a lot of times in early December. And, and they'll spend the majority of their time, what I see, in that location. And so in that respect, uh, yes, you can pattern them. Um, you know, it's a little bit different. I think every one thinks about patterning is, these, these bucks are going to an evening food source in September and October, and you can pattern them that way. They might even have them locked into, they're going to this bedding area, which is a little bit more risky hunt, but you know they're going there, and they're bedding there, they're feeding there, and they get locked into that pattern. But um, that doesn't mean that they don't have rutting patterns and that you can capitalize on and that they repeat every single year. Yeah. So what... How would you define a rut pattern then? I mean, you used to give great examples of what a September or October pattern might look like. What could we realistically call a rut pattern or what's an example of something like that? I still think they hit the, uh, they hit their afternoon evening food source. That's a priority to them. And I think a lot of people look at the rut as a little bit more random just because, you know, pressures applied, hunting pressure in September and October. And then bucks seem to find a way to gravitate towards those food sources and habitats that they want to hang out during that specific time. And really hunting pressure, changing food sources, changing the quality of the bedding or the security of the bedding, they'll move a long ways. And, and I always look at, I call it the 5% club, but it's really those properties, 5% of all properties that really attract mature bucks. And so while a lot of bucks are leaving their September, early October areas, in going to these locations, there are those locations that are capturing them. And then they're still hitting their afternoon food sources on a somewhat regular basis. If there's water holes that they want to hit, often they're hitting those water hole uh, or water hole sources. And then at the same time, you really see the same box being in the same smaller location between doe bedding areas and buck bedding areas. So you really see I'm hunting more. And, and really during this time, some of those patterns, I almost referred to it as vertical um, perpendicular for where you're looking at bucks are going straight from not straight but they're going from a bedding area to a food source and then that completely flips around this year this time of year where they're more paralleling those food sources paralleling those bedding areas and and so trails that you didn't hunt in september october now become very uh, patternable because they're they're flipping around and they're going between those bedding areas, between those food sources. It's, it's completely different game, you know, stands that we don't even use the rest of the year. Uh, yeah. For the rut. That's a great point. I really like that, that vertical versus parallel or horizontal type movement is, is so true. Um, I, I kind of want to do, I'm going to do a weird kind of chronological thing. I want to focus kind of first sure. on, you know, these rut ideas and then I'm probably going to bring us back and ask about some of the things that you're doing outside of the rut. But but real quick, if you had to pick like the best time of year to have a buck patterned and kill a buck on a pattern, what would that window be where it's like the primo time to have this kind of success? Is it like late October? Is it right now? Or is it that early season time period? What do you think? Or something else entirely? Oh, boy. <laughs> That's a tough one. Well, we're talking about the rut. So do we need to talk about the early season? You know, it's kind of like, the early season you have 
uh, short window, meaning that um, it seems like those early season patterns are fleeting, especially in your home state of Michigan, where the opener is October 1st. Yeah. Well, those bucks change your pattern and it might not even have anything to do with hunting pressure, but think about all the hunting pressure that's applied. Well, when they get locked into their fall range where they're really going to hang out for late October, November, December, then to me that late October pre-rut time where the does aren't necessarily ready, but the bucks are, is, is just such an outstanding time because they'll move a lot more. To me, they move a lot more during daylight. They finally move during the morning hours, uh, sometimes to me, uh, several times more than they do in the afternoon, evening, where they're more relating to that food source movement. In the morning, it's still cool. They're still making rub scrapes, moving around near the bedding areas. And they still might not leave a 10-acre area, but they're really active within that area. So to me, for a longer window of time, you have more of a predictable amount of time that you can actually pattern a uh, buck during that pre-rut time. And then when he gets into the rut, he still could hold some of those same patterns. But, you know, let's face it, he could be on a doe a mile away, that he's just some random uh, chance that he's over there. Um, you still hunt, you know, you still can hunt those same patterns. You can still kill that target buck. Um, but to me, he's in that window a little bit less time. He's really consistent at the end of October, which might be more like early November for someone in Kansas, Tennessee, Arkansas, West Virginia, um, a little bit further south. Yeah. I've definitely seen that myself in some places where you, even though there is the crazy rut stuff going on, there's still a, a general kind of cycle that's that's happening that you can kind of pattern like like you mentioned that doe bedding area checking doe bedding to doe bedding you know i've seen bucks repeat like okay they're gonna hit this bedding area and then they're gonna hit this next one and they're gonna hit that next one and they're gonna come through and hit it again sometime in the next day or two or whatever it is of course there's the chance to get on a doe and disappear for two days but you know you can kind of develop that predictive capability based on some of those observations so i guess that that is relevant because i'm I'm curious what specific things are you doing that are unique to this time period when you're trying to pattern a buck during the rut that are, that's different than what you would do in September or October. Like what's, what is unique to your rut pattern and you know, development or execution for this time of year? Boy, there's a few things, Mark. Um, I, I wish I had a list, <laughs> but there's one, one of the things that I think is really critical. Um, we'll just start off in the early season I'll notice when it's really hot, uh, when it's really windy, it just doesn't seem like those bucks are moving during daylight. They don't have to. They're big bodies. They have a lot of fat on them. They're just putting on fat. And they seem to be a lot more docile. They're just, they're just kind of, you know, you can catch them in that pattern. But to me, when that weather really plays an important role on how far they're going to move during daylight. And, and, and it's not that they're, you know, they're, they're moving that much more. It seems like it just, they might move. 10 minutes, a half hour before dark, instead of 10 minutes, a half hour after same movement, same amount of time. It's just, just a little bit different timing where when it gets into closer to the pre-rot an evening hunt, uh, for example, last night it was about 49 degrees, uh, when we came in from hunting and, and that's a really cool temperature. Um, it was, it was after three days of warm up. We had some really cold temperatures earlier in the week. Um, I think a low of 27 in the morning. But deer are really active in the evening, and it's almost like I don't really need to have that giant cold front to go sit on a nice, cool evening. I'll place more of, an, uh, of a priority on hunts in the evening that I wouldn't, you know, say an average temperature day. 
to the average high is uh, 52. And so we have a day that's 54. Well, that's not that far off. And when you get into the pre-rut, those bucks are active. And unless it's really hot, really windy, there's something extreme going on, I find that they're moving more during daylight. And so I'll focus on more average days during the pre-rut where I wouldn't have sat those average weather days um, during September, October, if that makes sense. So that's one big thing. I'll start hunting a little bit more frequent. Those mornings are really key on those cold mornings. And so I'll start to flip the morning stand. Uh, during this time of year, I've sat one morning now, unless I have a buck pegged in the early season where I, I really believe that he's betting in this location. And I'll give you an example. Let's say a 20 acre woodlot. It's surrounded by ag fields and one side is planted maybe in corn. Let's say they're hitting the bean side. That's where they're at every night. You think you can sneak in that corn side. There's a ditch bank back there. There's a little mound or something where you think those bucks bed. And you could sneak in, boy, you're sent back in the corn because they're not eating that corn on October 5th. And you're waiting for those bucks to come back to you. That's an example of a really good morning setup. Maybe you're walking through brush, non-deer area, swamp, water. You cross a creek, a river. You get into the back of the woodlot and you wait for those bucks to come back in the morning. That's, that's just a really defined use. But a lot of people don't have that opportunity. And I normally don't even around here on the properties I hunt. So I don't hunt a lot of mornings because evening can be so predictable like we talked earlier that's just they're doing this they're moving from here to here but when it comes to this time of year in the pre-rut we even see on our trail cameras that, that the bucks are very active in the mornings i saw one of the five-year-olds this morning he was moving across a small food plot about an hour and a half after daylight wow. he hasn't done that all year we haven't seen that and so right now is when it really starts picking up where morning opportunities are great i'm placing a little bit more a priority on those average sits in the evening but i'm still looking at it that this is a morning stand here and this is an evening stand here i think it's very important as people get into november and the rut that they talk about you know really define this is a morning stand this is an evening stand because if you spend all day in a morning stand back in bedding areas those bucks are going to focus on food in the afternoon even if they're moving for does that's where the does are going then you're going to spend half of your day in an unproductive stand. So I like to really focus on morning and then flip around to hunt that evening hunt, even if I'm sitting all day. Yep, that makes sense. One thing that I often think about is, is you know, when it comes to the rut, is the speed, maybe not speed, it's the the duration of a pattern during the rut. So for example, the opposite of this might be a September pattern where, or in October, let's say like late September into early October here in Michigan, I had some bucks that were, you know, very frequently mature bucks moving in the evening in daylight out of a swamp into a green bean field. And they would do it almost nightly or every other night or something like that. And that was going on for, for weeks on end. I was getting relatively consistent daylight pictures of a mature buck doing this thing. And I knew, you know, until those beans changed or someone went there and blew it out, like he was going to keep doing that. And so that was a pattern I knew had some right. time on it. But on the opposite yeah. side of things, when I see something pop up during November, uh, let's say a buck shows up on my cell camera and he's in a bean field tonight, or a buck shows up on a scrape back in some transition cover or something like that. My question to you is, how fast do you need to jump on a pattern if you see something happen twice in a row or two times in a week or something? How fast do you need to jump on something like that during the rut or how long will it last? Because my, my assumption has always been like these things are very fleeting during the rut. 
Um, has that been your experience or how do you look at the speed of taking advantage of something you're observing during that time period? I think it depends on the buck. So now you, you're talking November, let's say it's November 5th and you have a buck that you haven't seen all year. You maybe even knew he was live. You made it through the season. You had trail cam pictures in February or whatever it might be. You're waiting for him to show up. All of a sudden he's there. Well, it's almost like he's told you at that point of the season that, Hey, you're not, you're not right in the middle of my wheelhouse, but you're part of my wheelhouse. And I look at it like you need to jump on that immediately. So if you see him, he's there, he's cutting through this funnel. Um, maybe you see him from a distance. You need to jump on him right then because he's going to go back home eventually. He's going to spend the majority of his time at home. And he's already told you, you're only a part of my wheelhouse. You're not my wheelhouse. You're not in the center of it. So you're, you're on the fringe area of his. On the flip side, you have this buck that you've been watching and he's consistently started to hone in on your property more October 10th, October 15th. You start seeing him more often. There's more sign popping up that you believe is him, pictures, whatever it might be. That's that buck that he's going to be in your area half the time. So I'm not saying you don't jump on that sign. I'm always looking at, like, if he just was there this morning, I better get there this evening if I think he's coming back. I've watched a five, six-year-old buck go up with a, a doe assumingly breeder in a certain bedding area and he went in one way because of the wind i had to sit on the, the other side of that bedding area but i waited for him to come back and you know come out and he comes out um that evening so you know you just have to jump on that right away and he might have been in back in that bedding area three days later or four days later but that's a case where a day you know the same day matters yeah so really some of those bucks are there consistently but then you have some of those giants. There's one in uh, in Wisconsin. I'm waiting for. I've had one picture of him so far. I know he's alive. Knew we made it. He made it through the season. But boy, I'd love to see him. And so when he all of a sudden starts to be more consistent on the land, I don't want to miss out on that opportunity. Yeah. So that's that's not an uncommon thing to have like a a rut buck, like a buck who you never see except for a handful of times during the rut. Um, yeah. How do that's you? Very common. How do you handle that kind of situation? Like, how do you plan or put together a plan to to hunt that buck or develop some kind of pattern or idea for how to kill that buck when you know that's the situation? Like, let's say like last year this buck did that thing. You now see, okay, he's a rut buck. He lives somewhere else, but he's going to come through, you know, sometime in this window. Now it's 2022. You're expecting that to happen again. What was the plan? Maybe you can tell me about this specific buck, or if not, just give me a generic example of what you're specifically doing to A, watch for him for when he shows up, and then B, how do you approach it Like in those following days? Are you just going to hunt what he did last year, or are you going to put out more cameras in the area to try to pick up on what he's specifically doing, or how would you go after one special deer like that in that scenario? What's, I love that um, type of scenario because a lot of people look at it like, um, they could look at it like, well, I'm, I'm going to sit every day and I'm going to shoot them or I'm going to have an opportunity at them and then, and then wonder why they never see them. And then other folks might look at it like it's just a shot in the dark, you know, a needle in a haystack. You know, how, how are you going to get a chance at a buck that's just a ghost and he's never on your land? And I would say about half of my mature bucks, the oldest ones, are, have been those kind of bucks where they live somewhere else. And the thing about those bucks is for two or three years, you might have two years of pictures, maybe even three that they've, you might have 15 pictures total, but they've told you that I'm going to be there in this window between November 3rd. You might've had one picture. You might add another picture in November 10th or 12th. And you know, they're going to be there during that window. They're going to move a lot because they're already, they're already moving wherever they're coming from. If those bucks are showing up in the middle of the night, once or twice in October, 
they're telling you, I live a mile away or a mile and a half away. So when he gets to you, he's already moving a lot. So you can count on him not to just sit around. He's there for a purpose. He's looking for does. And so that makes me think that I can sit on funnels in that area, whether it's joining woodlots or a swamp edge in that area, areas that I can blow my scent safely somewhere else and I can pick around and have a reasonable chance of, of shooting that buck because he's told me for two or three years he'll be there, even if it's just 12, 15 pictures. And then when I look at that window, he's there during the peak rut. He's already bred a doe or two back home. And so in the pre-rut, he finds it, you know, all the bucks get invited to the party. He gets to find a doe. Every other buck gets to find a doe. And then that second or third one becomes a little bit harder. They only breed two to four, I think, in that first primary rut. And that's any buck. So that second or third buck, he starts ranging out a little bit more. And that's when you start to see those trail cam photos. And in our area, that would be November 2nd, 3rd through the 10th, 12th, somewhere around there, maybe even the 14th, the 15th. That'd be towards on the, on the back, back side of that window. Well, then if he's coming a long ways, and he's coming a long ways from home to be there during that time, and he's told you that for two or three years because you just had a handful of pictures, maybe a couple of sightings. Well, then he's not going to move over when it's, let's say, northern Ohio. I don't know what the average high is in early November, but I would guess that it's low 50s to mid 50s. Just, just a guess. Uh, maybe high 40s, but somewhere around in there. Let's say it's 75 and 35 mile an hour winds. I just don't think he's going to make that long track. It's too windy. It's too stressful. He can't hear can't see as well. I just don't think he makes that, that long trek over to the land. If it's really, really windy, thunder, lightning, extreme temperatures, extreme wind, extreme snow, hail, sleet, whatever it was, I just don't think he makes that trek. So you look at that 10-day forecast around there from the 2nd of November to the 12th, 14th of November, and you say, you know, these are three or four really solid cold front days where these cold fronts pass, this cold fronts pass through nice morning lows. Uh, the winds have subsided, not necessarily. I kind of like when there's a little bit of wind, but instead of being 35 mile an hour November winds, they're now 12 or 15 mile an hour winds or eight miles an hour. And, and so that, that front has gone by. So I look at it like you could take that 10 day window and say, you know what, I bet if he's here, it's going to be on one of those three days. So then I put a priority on hunting those funnels where I know that he's been around in the past making that assumption he's going to be through that funnel. And uh, it's amazing how you show up to hunt one of those on a good cold front evening or morning, and he falls right into your lap here, a buck you only have 12 pictures of over a two to three year period, and you haven't even seen that year um, yet on the land. And then you check, you might check a trail camera, and here there's three or four pictures on there that he's been around. But to me, it's not that much of a needle in a haystack. When he's told you for two or three years, I'm, you're a part of my wheelhouse, when you can narrow down to those good cruising days for him with the assumption he's traveling a little ways to get there. And then he can sit on some known rut funnels in that area that are a little bit thick, might be inviting to him. You know, he's actually probably be out through an open hardwood wood lot or open field. He's going along a thick edge somewhere. And then you're going in and popping in for him and you shoot him. And it, it, it makes it sound easy, but it's almost like you, you plan on that happening He's told you he's going to be there. You watch the weather. You look for the good days to sit. You go sit on a funnel, and, he, and you've done everything to prepare for that moment. And it's really, he hasn't told you he's going to be there the 17th of December or mid-December or even mid-January or August or September or early October. Even the end of October, he's told you he's going to be back during that window in early November. He's going to be there during daylight. 
and you just narrow it down and pick the right stand and, and you hunt. You could hunt three or four sets for that buck if you're just picking around on those funnels. And you might find that he moved by two of your other stand locations that day too because he's moving around so much. So to me, you hunt a buck like that and it becomes a lot easier than you might think. Yeah. So uh, you, you touched on one of the topics I was curious about and I'm wondering if your perspective on it is different outside of the rut. So one of the things I'm always curious about is what happens in your mind when a historical trend, like an annual pattern, those dates arrive, but the conditions don't match. So his window of, of showing up for you is usually like the seventh through the 12th, let's say. And this year though, the seventh through the 12th comes up and you've got hot cruddy weather. Um, so what you just told me during the rut would be, well, you're going to try to find the best cold weather days within that window or close to it because he won't make that move on the hot weather day. Um, what about if this situation, if this was a historical trend we were trying to take advantage of, not during the rut. So if this was like, man, for whatever reason, he always shows up mid October and he hangs out for a week or something like that, or maybe same thing, but December, um, does the match between dates and conditions matter more or less? outside of the rut? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it'd depend on, you always have to ask yourself, why is he showing up at that time? Um, for example, we had a spot in Wisconsin that uh, we would have some odd bucks show up in mid-October. Well, then we found out the neighbors from Chicago were coming over and that's when they would go into their cabin and they had a big hunting weekend and they were in the middle of 160 acres, mostly open hardwoods or cabins in the middle and they drove, uh, side-by-side ATVs to their stands. And it was just a, a big moment to push deer off their land. And so if you knew that they were there, we got to where we would actually drive over and see if their gate was open or not to know what stands to sit in because we would make the assumption they're going to push deer off their land as soon as they came, as soon as they uh, showed up, as soon as they went hunting. And then in December, I see a lot of uh, cool bucks. There was a buck last year I was really hoping to hunt, even though I or shoot even though I only had two or three pictures of them throughout the entire season, I shot him during uh, middle of muzzleloader season in early December in Wisconsin. And uh, it was the first time I saw him in person and I was just hunting late season food sources. And I was making sure that it was with muzzleloader. I shot him at like 195 yards, so a little ways away, but it was a spot where I could let those food sources sit, not disturb them and uh and just wait for that buck to show up and there's one other one i would have liked to have shot too but um between the two of them you're just waiting for one of them to show up and so i guess you'd have to ask for the conditions and in those conditions right there where they're in feeding conditions yeah if it's really windy and stormy they're probably not out there and um and then in that early season um whether you know maybe they're making a transition from their their summer range to their fall um, maybe they only stick around because, you know, there's a lot of people that overpressure their land. So this buck shows up, they come in and get a couple sits in there and spook them off. Um, you know, so there's a lot of, when I go to clients, it's always interesting because it's kind of an interview of, yeah, we have this big buck that shows up now. And so you start asking, well, when do you hunt? When do your neighbors hunt? When do your food sources peak? Are your food sources dwindling at that time? Do your food sources run out the end of October? Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of conditions that, um, that you could, you could, uh, really discuss and explore with that. And that's part of the, you know, like you like to geek out with that stuff too. It's kind of like not just accepting that he's doing that, but why he's doing that. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to that, that early November time, you know, I look at it like you have about a 10 day window 
And, and you're going to have about three really good days during that 10 day window. You're probably going to have three or four average days. I'd still hunt those average days, of course. And then you're going to have probably two or three dud days and not to say you don't hunt. A lot of people have a rutcation and they need to get out in the woods. So, but, um, I would slant my best efforts or best stands towards those best weather days. And, uh, so you're just constantly picking around and, um, and kind of going in making light jabs, kind of looking at it like, well, this is, uh, even though it's 10 days, it's still a marathon, not a sprint and you're still making smart decisions. So, yeah. um, I guess we touched on a few, few things there, but, uh, I, I, you always ask yourself why there's, that's the fun part about it. Why, why is he showing up and leaving? Yeah. Why is he not? So speaking of one of those whys and and a condition of sorts that I'm always wondering about when I'm looking at pictures or observations and I'm trying to ask, why was he here? And do I think he'll come back again, you know, tomorrow or whatever day I'm trying to plan out. Uh, One of the factors that I always wonder how important is, is, is the wind direction. So like, was he here because it was a South day, a South wind day? And do all of my pictures of him in this spot end up being South wind days? Or is there some kind of correlation between direction and him showing up in these places or not? Um, do you look at wind direction as being one of those big things that dictates, you know, if a buck will show up in a certain place or bed in a certain place or travel in a certain way? Um, and how important is that to you when looking at a historical trend? If the wind direction you have coming up doesn't match even though the dates match in history or something like that. Yeah. I, lo- I love that question. One of the things I really look at is I look at it very methodically, meaning that um, there's a buck moving in a certain area, whether it's historical patterns that you've seen or you see current patterns. And I have two stands in that location. I feel I can get in and out to one a little bit better for morning, one a little bit better for evening. Maybe I can get into them both for morning and evening. Then I'm going to pick out, okay, I want to hunt Thursday. It's a decent day. And I'm going to go hunt the stand that's best for the wind and hope to see him. And I'm not going to look at it like he's only moving in that area on a south wind day or a north wind day. I'm going to look at more of the absolute or lowest hole in the bucket, meaning that I only have those two stand locations. I'm only going to hunt them when the wind's good for each stand. I want to try to shoot that buck. So I'm going to go in and try to shoot him regardless of what that wind direction is that I think he's moving on. Hmm. I want to just go hunt the stands based on those winds. So then I just, I never even consider that, um, that he's only moving in the spot in the north wind because I'll see the same buck move in the same spot with even bedding area locations to move in or out of that with different winds. And so I think you get, uh, kind of into a trap where almost overthinking or overanalyzing that he's only going to move on this wind. He's moving somewhere during the other wind. And so I want to make sure that I have a south wind stand. And that means I'd hunt this side of the bedding area. And if I have a north wind stand, I'm going to hunt the other side. You know, they're, they're different conflicting winds. And that's what I got. You know, it's kind of like these, if I think he's in that bedding area, I'm not going to miss a stop, uh, spot to hit him because I only think he's moving on north winds. And, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to have stands for alternate winds and just, just chip away at them. And that's what I've found. Just you chip away at them two or three times and you get lucky. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition. 
of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth i feel like i need to bring us back to the beginning a little bit to even better understand how you're getting some of this information because i got ahead of myself a little bit because of the rut uh but but probably to get the information that you're talking about this historical information these real-time pictures these observations we got to talk about how you get that data um, cause that then gives you the tools you need to make a decision on November 1st or October 29th or sure. November 12th, whatever it is. Um, so can you walk me through what your process looks like when you are trying to pattern a deer? Let's just say the previous season had ended. It's the last, it's the, the first day of a new season. Um, and in your mind, you know, Hey, there's, there's a buck I know made it and I really want to kill him in 2023 or 2022, whatever scenario you want to be in. Can you talk me through what you're doing throughout the year to build 
or to, to determine what that pattern is. So everything from what scouting matters in this patterning process to what camera work you're doing matters for this process to if you do any observation stuff that might build this out. Um, I, you know, I know you're doing lots of habitat, so there's tons of other things you're doing, but just specifically to the trying to develop a data set to help you pattern this deer, what does that part of your process look like leading up to this season? Yeah, that's a good question. There's, um, I, I, again, I love talking about this stuff with you, Mark. <laughs> it's fun, but, uh, the, uh, there's, you could fast forward that all the way to right current in the season and all the way to the last day, you know, the, the day after the season ends, you know, for one thing, you're knowing that he's there and, you know, knowing that he's here, whether, whether it's, uh, by personal observation, trail camera or sign. And so, you know, a lot of times when we're on privately in around here, we know what bucks made it through the season. You know, neighbors might share a picture. Uh, you might see them. You might get your own picture. You might find a shed. So you know, he's around. And then you start thinking about all the places that you saw him, and you really start to narrow it down. Now, some people will go to a, uh, go to a map. You know, I use hunt wise. I think you use uh, Onyx mm-hmm. and you know, whatever someone uses, but you can start placing pins for those bucks. Uh, some people take a paper map and they'll actually put it on a whiteboard almost. They're marking where they think that buck is. I, I just remember in my head, you know, where, where we've had pictures, where we've seen them before. And then I'm making a reasonable estimation when I'm out uh, shed hunting, walking the property in the off season, you know, especially right after the season ends, is what kind of sign am I seeing to back that up? And you're looking at like, man, that, you know, I've gotten pictures of buck, this certain buck here and here, or I found a shed here, I got pictures here. And then I'm finding this really good sign in between. And you start to like put the, the pictures together. When he comes through this area, he's moving in this location. And then you're going into the season with how can I have a plan of attack where I can hunt here, here, and here with different winds, maybe a morning stand here that's closer to bedding, an afternoon stand here that's closer to food. You have that stand assemblage for that buck. And then you're actually going in and just chipping away at him at that time where your pictures, your personal observations, the signs popped up that you think is his. And then you're just going, and for me, I picked those better weather days. So if I was going in for a buck like that, then I want to make sure that the wind is perfect, that the, the weather's decent. And then I'm going in with all that leading up to it. Yeah, I think he's moving through this funnel. I think I can hunt this stand. And I'm, I'm not so much worrying about, you know, what the wind direction is or anything like that, other than I have these, these three stands I have set for this buck. He moves through this area, and it's that time of year where he's around. The sign's popping up. I'm getting pictures of him or whatever, or historical. And so then I'm just making that methodical decision. Well, it's a southwest wind. I, it's an evening stand. I have I can hunt this one stand, so I go in and hunt it. And I don't put much thought into it. I, I kind of go at it a little bit more black and white so that it doesn't cloud my my thoughts. You know, you just this is what I have. I'm going to go on them. And, and that can even apply to, uh, like, there's a real nice buck that I shot. I think it's going back to, oh, boy, 2011 on public land in the UP of Michigan. I went to scout for opening day of uh, gun season. And I'm way out in the swamps where I used to hunt on public land, going about 45 minutes. Uh, my son Jake and I were actually there last year on opening day in Michigan, um, which was a different story. But uh, that... Uh, I went in there and there's some giant rubs. And when you find rubs 
out in the public land in Michigan, you start looking for bait piles. And if there's no bait piles, then in these rubs are few and far between. You start to think, man, this is a daytime pattern. You know, it's way out away from bait piles, other people, other access points. You start to think, man, this, I could be onto something. So here I'm hunting sign. I'm hunting big rubs, a couple big scrapes. I'm thinking, okay, I can go through this marsh. I can blow my scent out. I can sit in here in a little cluster of conifer. I actually took the boys out on opening day with me, drug them back there. They were like eight and 10 chairs and pop up and everything sit there all day. Uh, uh, Dante, my stepson thought he saw a giant buck at one o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't see it other than a body. He said it was really big and he's not one to make things up. We said we had a four point walk right by us. And so that was a Tuesday opener, I believe. And then two days later on Thursday, I went out there and uh, went out for a morning hunt and he ended up walking right into my lap and i'm sure that was the buck that was making that sign he ended up being close to 150 inch eight point he was just beautiful and that was an example where i'm hunting sign i'm hunting funnels i'm hunting this is what i have I, I can hunt with west winds i don't care what you know it doesn't i don't know what wind he's moving on but i can only hunt with westerly winds on the edge of that swamp i'm not going to walk through this funnel where i think he's moving through so it worked out on Thursday. It happened to be a pretty good uh, cold front that moved through uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday. So when I went out, it was chilly, frosty, and and uh, he ended up coming right through to me. And that was I didn't I didn't know what he looked like until literally I walked up to him and he was dead. You know, other than partial mature antler, big buck, you know, at 40 yards or whatever it was, and shot and and uh, got lucky and found him. So kind of the same scenario this is what i have for stands in that area this is where i think he's moving this is the time of year i have evidence that he's there whether it's signed pictures personal observation and then you're going in with your plan of attack being careful you're not going in too soon you're not going in too often meaning i have have people someone asked me the other day on youtube they said what what happens you want to hunt this box certain stand location what happens if the wind's wrong i just don't hunt the stand i don't even consider it it's it's just something that I have these three stands. They're good for these winds. This one, these two are evening. This one's a morning wind, you know, morning stand. And um, and I look at it like, okay, when I get that wind and it's a decent day, I'm going in for them. I can't remember if we've talked about this, Jeff. If we did, it's been a while. Um, what's your take? I mean, you, you sort of answered this when I asked you about that wind direction correlation or not correlation yeah. to whether they move through or not. But But a lot of folks, you know, talk about hunting spots where the wind is right for the buck, where the buck can quarter in or have the wind in his face. And then the hunter tries to set up with a just off wind, like a wind that's just going to cut off the corner of where they think this buck's coming. Do you, do you, what do you think about that? Is that something you, I think, I think we've talked about that. Now, if, if I had my preference, it would be a little bit um, in the buck saver where they have that assumption of, you know, it's kind of like when we're hunting in the hills around here and we're hunting high in the morning, he's got those thermals rising from below. And I think he's walking because he has that advantage of scent checking down, down below him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's walking to with a purpose like that. Um, and, uh, and so for the rut, that's ideal. He's walking between bedding areas. He can scent check down below him for hundred to 150 yards. But again, I'm looking at that. Um, you know, a buck I shot out here two years ago, Kermit, um, there was, I went out to that stand a day or two days earlier and it's a stand we call the Kermit stand now, but I went out to the Kermit stand 
had a reasonable expectation that he was in this area based on trail cameras. I hadn't seen him personally. And uh, we had trail cameras starting the end of June, but I, he wasn't, we didn't have a lot of pictures of him, but enough to know he was in this area. I was in his wheelhouse and uh, went out to that stand in the wind. So imagine I'm looking into the woods, not even thinking about direction or anything. I'm looking into the woods and the wind was kind of light and it was going like from left to right, a little bit of an angle out behind me, if that makes sense. So I'm looking straight yeah. downhill into the woods. The problem is, is because it was forecasted to, let's say, three, four miles an hour at dark and then getting calm two to three hours after dark, the wind always basically foreshadows what's going to happen. And so I'm sitting there three hours before dark and I'm looking at like, okay, this wind is really good for favorable for him if he comes from the right side or he comes from the left side. I'm on a pinch point. There's a deep, steep draw in front of me about 30 yards. So he comes through this pinch. The problem is the closer it got to dark, I knew as I sat there, I'm sitting there three hours before. And when the wind let up, my sense starting to go right back downhill because yeah. the thermals were going to eventually pull it right downhill. So I actually left that stand and went to another stand where I could count on the wind in, in a better uh, location, went back two days later. And now the wind's right in my face, blowing right out to the field behind me. So in that case, it's a 90 degree wind. Um, it, it, he would have had to move through 90 degrees. He has zero um, zero benefit of that wind, but I went in there and I ended up shooting them that night. So it's kind of one of those where if I got too hung up that I needed to hunt that quarter wind where it's kind of a 45 degree angle and it's coming into his face a little bit. What happened is after I shot him, went down there, we pulled that camera card on that scrape mock scrape that I have right there. He came in that night where I first sat, he came in from that direction of the wind. And I think more than 50, 50 chance he would have winded me and I would have never shot that buck. That would have been my opportunity. So if I would have held on too much to that quarter wind, instead of just making sure that it's a safe wind mostly and just hunt with what the stands I had available, then I think, uh, I think I would have ruined that hunt if I would have placed too much of a priority on that. So, um, again, it goes back to, these are my stands and, you know, of course, if I could move in and set up, uh, you know, hang and hunt really quick and get that done. I've done that in the past, um, and, and had success. You know, it's crazy. I did that in the past. I think it was 2003, shot a real nice buck. And, and it was, uh, I, I did a hanging hunt and he came from the exact opposite direction. I thought it all worked out, <laughs> but <laughs> you know, it sounds so smart that I saw him go in here. I saw him fight in the morning. I tried sneaking up on him with my socks on and frosty uh, grass wow. got close and didn't realize how close he was. He ran off with another buck and a doe. They went a certain direction. I thought he'd come out of one bedding area. He came out the exact opposite. I happened to be on the downwind side of both, you know, kind of that barbell in between Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it worked out, but, um, you know, again, it was more, this is the wind I had for the conditions and you just go, go sit. So Hmm. you mentioned, uh, with that public land buck that you had really used that sign to key in on him because, you know, rubs are not a super common thing in that big woods, public land kind of stuff. So when you see a concentration of them, it's, it's, it's a particularly good sign that brought to mind the question for me of how helpful physical sign is to patterning specific bucks. Like I know like general sign will tell you, Oh, I'm in an area with, with good deer. Maybe like if you're just trying to shoot a deer, but if you're trying to shoot like the deer, you mentioned, you mentioned that sometimes you'll try to 
use sign to clearly tell you something. But I guess what I'm trying to get here is, is what kind of sign or how, what level of detail have you ever been able to get with sign tying it to a specific bucks pattern? Like, have you ever found a unique thing on a bucks track and used that? Or have you ever looked at rubs and said, okay, anytime I find a rub that's got this super huge gouge right down the middle, that's gotta be this one buck with a sticker point. Or, or is there anything like that that you look for? Yeah, I guess, you know, with um, just sign in general, I, I love historical sign. And so when I'm looking for where he might go through a funnel, um, I want to find old rubs, new rubs, and just something about sign in general. When you're hunting public land, like if I'm hunting big public land in southeast Ohio, um, Shawnee uh, State Forest, Wayne National Forest, or, uh, you know, something big like that. The rubs can be few and far between unless you're near private land and they have uh, food plots. And so you, you might be out there looking for sign and you need to realize that a big rub on a funnel might be every 200 yards. Like it was in the UP of Michigan where it's big, big open wilderness area. It, it might not be concentrated, meaning concentrated for that area where on private land that might be really clustered in short. I had a buck in the UP of Michigan um, going back uh early 2000s maybe and he had a, a broken track so on one of his tracks you could tell his toe had had broke off so it was kind of blunt and uh and short you know half inch three quarter inch it was very distinguishable and so i actually kept scrapes open or patches on the land we owned and out on the, the public land so that i could when he came through that area, it was very easy to tell whether it was on our sand trails, on a scrape, or on an open patch on a trail that was in front of a tree stand that I just made a patch. It wasn't even necessarily a scrape. Then I could tell when he came through. And it was interesting because when he came through, he'd come from the east, he'd go into the property, and then he'd go north, and, and then I'd lose him. So it was almost like an L of movement. And that L was half mile that way and three quarters of a mile to a mile to the north. And so a pretty long area it was interesting when he came through he'd kind of make that whole loop so i'd find this track here 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 and so again it was okay i can hunt him with this wind and this stand this wind with this stand maybe more morning here i thought he was coming from the north moving south and then cutting east so i i consider that and, and it was in the evening i shot him on the northernmost most uh trail where i'd made a clearing and i'd found his track and i shot him right on that same spot um, with a bow uh, it was a december time and he ended up having that broken track and that's the first time i actually knew what bucky was you know it's pretty cool that was him with the track and it was a medium-sized track i would say that he was a two and a half to three and a half year old buck um I, in fact i would i would lean more towards two um at that time it was about 20 years ago so but um he was a you know that was a fun one uh gouges uh, what i really like is is looking behind the rub and above so you have the face of the rub, I'd call it, and then you can, his antlers are angled. And so that upper beam that's on the back side, that can tell you a lot too, because you can start to guesstimate about how wide that buck was that made that rub. You can see if there's any stickers or kickers. And when you're in an area like uh, some of the big wilderness areas, public land, that might not have as good a habitat or food sources, then it's, it's uncharacteristic to have non-typical genes expressed when they're younger. They don't have a lot of stickers, kickers, little forks. And so when you start seeing that in some of those areas that are kind of remote, you think, man, this could be a, this could be an older buck uh, just because it's got some 
stickers and kickers that aren't that common and on those cleaner racks when they're younger. And so something like that too, where I'm really, I like, look, I don't take a lot of, I don't put a lot of credibility in that that same buck's going to go right back by that same rub, but it lets me know he's in the area. And then I'm back down to hunting funnels and how can I get in and out? I think people can get wrapped up and okay, he's got to be moving through here, but then you force the stand location because um, there's really not a good spot to set or you have to walk through that area and leave your scent when you could shoot him just as easy on a funnel nearby. Yeah. This is, this is kind of an interesting thing. I just realized we've been talking about patterning deer for like 47 minutes, give or take. (laughs) And, and we have almost not talked about trail cameras at all. Like it's been kind of referenced a little bit lately, but we haven't really hammered it yet. That's kind of incredible that we've talked for 47 minutes and not gotten into cameras because so many people rely on cameras almost 100% for their scouting sure. and patterning. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that's actually been the case because I think it's important to point out to folks that patterning deer is not just a trail camera game, right? There's, there's all these other things. Yeah. There's the observations, well, there's the history, there's, what were you going to say? Well, yeah, you know, what's interesting, you might have trail cam pictures from two or three years ago. But if you know that box around you, for whatever reason, you've had the historical movement and patterning, you just need to know he's there to go in and kill him. I, what I was going to mention though, is it's interesting. You'll see, uh, you know, public land hunters that do something a certain way, private land hunters that do something. And, and I know Mark, you've hunted a lot on private land and public land. And I know you, I know, you know, it's darn hard on both for mm-hmm. different reasons. Yeah. It's interesting. I saw a meme going around where, you know, someone had eight camera locations on a 40 acre property or 80 acre property. And someone that was public land hunts was saying, you know, you know, something making fun of that kind of like, yeah, let's, let's pattern this box. This is going to be difficult. And, you know, eight cameras on 40 acres, you know, how many cameras ruin it for people, meaning that they, they go back, they can't leave them alone. Yeah. They're, they're going in and checking them all the time. They're changing batteries. They have too many. If bucks see them, it can spook them away. And it's really hard on 40 acres because if you mess up on 40 acres for a particular buck and you're using trail cameras and you're really pushing things too hard, you have nowhere else to go. Right. You might not be back. You might not be back that season. Where on public land, you can at least go a half mile away over here, quarter mile away over here. I mean, heck, you can drive 50 miles away and hunt some other spot. And so I'm not saying it's easier on one or the other, but I think it's funny that, you know, trail cameras can be picked on a little bit um, as it makes it easier when the way a lot of people use them, I think it makes it harder for them. They know the buck's there. Um, and, but there's a certain percentage out there where it can really hurt their hunt. Yeah. You make a great point. And I guess that's, you're doing a wonderful job of helping me as a host here because that's a perfect segue to the next thing I think we have to cover. How do we, how do you recommend we use cameras to pattern deer and not do what you just said, which is educate the deer, mess this up, make it harder than it has to be. Um, I know you've, I've watched lots of videos. I've heard you talk about your, your, uh, thought process behind placing cameras where you hunt, like right at your stand locations, which is another thing most people don't do. Um, could you talk a little bit about your location choices and then how you're doing that so that you get the data you need to pattern a deer without educating him? Sure. I've, you know, and it's, I really like, um, and I do this out on public land where I identify a natural scrape and a funnel that I want to hunt or want to know about, 
you know, it seems like it might be that X movement between clear cuts away from people, uh, lay of the land, uh, a pinch point of something. And so you're, you're putting a camera on a scrape, but I'm, I'm using those cameras. I would say 90% of my cameras are, are within bow shot of my stand locations. And I'm doing that because I want to know how effective that stand location is for one. Um, I like getting pictures at my stand locations. We use mock scrapes, but I, what I'm doing with those cameras is I'm making sure that they're not part of the picture, meaning that they're most of the time they're six feet high or they're hidden back in a V meaning that um, there's cover on both sides. The profile is hidden. Um, it's just kind of like they're shining out in a cove and there's really not much of a reason for deer to walk by them, see them, notice them. I'm using blackout cameras so that, um, or low glow. So you don't have this red glow. Um, so by the time you place them high, you place them on something typically that's wider, typically their profiles hidden, then it becomes a non-factor to the deer. And then I'm only changing that card when I actually hunt that stand. And it might be that I hunt a stand and then on the way out in the evening, I know those deer are feeding somewhere all night away from where I'm hunting. So I might change two other cards on the way back because it's a similar access route. So I'm not taking this 11 o'clock drive on the ATV to go out and change trail camera cards. I'm keeping the cameras hidden. And then what I really like about that is when we use a mock scrape and it's right at that location, a lot of times you have that buck come in, they're focusing on that mock scrape. They're, they're literally staring at the scrape. They don't notice the camera. They don't notice us in the stand. And whether that's a natural scrape that you're hunting on public land or a, a mock scrape on private land, uh, it's a really good tool. I mean, even for younger hunters or inexperienced hunters where you can actually have, take the focus away from them potentially moving in the tree and a deer looking up at them when they're really focused, you know, we see does and fawns focused on those scrapes just as much as those, those bucks that come through too. Yeah. You've got some so great. That's kind of where I'm using those cameras. You know, I, I, I use them at, I like having them at the stand locations and, um, at, at the same time, you know, of course, cellular cameras, um, are, are a big advantage, but it can, it can aggravate you because you're hunting one spot. And last night, Dylan and I were at one stand hunting and, the buck we're after is at another stand. And when he left that camera, I didn't even tell Dylan till later, we're both hoping he'd show up obviously, but if he would have come our way, we would have got another one or two pictures of him. And he, by him only giving us one picture, that means he turned left and, and went away from us. So it can be frustrating because <laughs> you know, unless you make some giant loop or something act of God happens, he's not, he's not coming our way. Yeah. So, or, He's there and it's close to dark and he's not where you're at. I, I want to come back to the cell camera thing, but before that, I, I, I want to touch on the mock scrape thing a bit because you, you have a unique approach. You've done some great videos on it. So I definitely recommend folks that if, if they hear about this and they're intrigued, they should go to your YouTube channel, watch the videos. But could you give us the quick cliff notes on that again, just in case someone hasn't heard you talk about this in the past? How do you make these mock scrapes that oh, just sure. seem so, they seem particularly effective for getting these deer to stop in front of that camera and give you that information you need, you know, for patterning or a shot? Well, they're, yeah, they're a lot of fun. And, um, you know, I kind of stumbled upon it because in the past, uh, there was people like uh, Tony LaPratt in Southern Michigan, I would say late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Um, there are other, other individuals too. Um, I want to say 
uh, bow hunting October. The Wenzel brothers might have used this in the past too. Maybe that's where Tony got it from. But anyways, they're using a rope um, and hanging it from uh, a branch. And so I'd see these ropes in the early 2000s, and I'd go to start going to properties, and I'd see. I went to one property where they literally had uh, 500 mock scrapes on 200 acres, and they're all ropes. Wow. And a few of them were getting hit here and there, but nothing really that jumped out at you. And then I start seeing these. Some of my favorite natural scrapes I see on client properties or scouting in general for myself are um, are vines that are hanging down, and it's just crazy. And some of the first scrapes I ever saw back in the 80s, uh, back in Clarkston in Michigan, in that area, now it's all deer woods, estates, and subdivisions, but you had these knolls back in the hardwoods. I didn't even know what those scrapes were. I had to show a guy, Al Bigger from church. I said, what are these? Like, are these deer around here? And he's like, those are scrapes. They're making them under those vines. And so anyways, got the idea of just hanging those and we broke jack pine branches in the UP of Michigan and then hanging those vines. And what I found was, is that when you put a camera on them, we'd hang these vines in more of a deer trail area, not off to the side, like a traditional scrape at the edge of the, like at the edge of the field, we'd put it where they're coming in and out in a trail um, or on a funnel. And every deer that walks by, because it's right in the trail, we hang them at waist high instead of a traditional licking branch that's chest high where a buck would mostly hit. So then when they come by and it's about waist high, it's right in the middle of the trail, we have does, fawns, and bucks leaving their scent on it, the preorbital gland scent every time they come through. And so then to me, the more scent that's included on that, the more deer hit it, it just becomes a part of their travel pattern. And I really strongly feel that, you know what, when you have a scrape like that, and it's a vertical scrape hanging over a branch where all deer can participate then, including fawns. We have some really cool, uh, lots of footage of fawns coming in and dancing around the scrape, playing with it, going back. You can imagine this fawn that's not even two months old. They don't even know what all those smells are. Their tails are flickering. They're curious. They run around. They come back to it. But when every deer is leaving their scent there, you can take four or five trails in an area and narrow it down to one, where that's where the deer are going to go. And so then we put a camera on it. What I find is during the summertime, we'll, I'll have cameras on my buck cruising scrapes just to know when a buck comes through, they'll always tell you they're alive, you know, meaning that maybe they only come through once in July, a couple of times in August, a couple of times in September, but they'll come through that, that funnel where you expect to shoot them in the fall. And so all of a sudden he comes through and you think, man, that's that buck I want. That's him. That's that target buck. And he's, he's coming, he's licking that. And then I think he likes all that smell. I, it's, you know, we, we can't comprehend their noses. You know, we go by and smell bread. They go by and smell the ingredients and approximately which one's stronger than the other. So they're, they're, they're complete. I mean, think about a beagle where they hit a track of a rabbit, no snow, no rain, no mud. And they know exactly in the moment, which way to turn and follow that rabbit based purely on scent. So their noses are so unique. So they, they go by and they smell these licking branches and those, that preorbital gland scent. To me, it's that accumulation of all those deer together. And so they're about waist high. I hang in most of those branches like jack pine up north, uh, vines down here. Um, oak branches work really well. It's anything that traditionally gets rubbed quite a bit or scraped under. Uh, hemlock in some areas. Well, then I'm hanging that. Usually they're five to seven feet long. I'm hanging them from a rope, a branch. Uh, typically, if it's really open, say you're hanging it like in a two-track area where there's a big hard one on both sides, not a lot of branches, I might make that vine or branch more like eight feet long, seven or nine feet, and then I'll put a, a rope um, 12 feet up in the air or 13 feet up, 
stand on the back of the tailgate of the truck or use the steps on a from a ladder to get up a little bit on either side and uh and so it looks more natural you don't want to have this one foot piece of vine just hanging there i think that's unnatural to them so a little bit longer when it's more open like that but we're usually using three quarter of an inch to an inch it seems like smaller will still attract them but it's not as visible but it'll break and then larger at some point it's just too big you know uh, if it's a baseball bat hanging there they might rub it they might not but it seems to be that sweet spot that we found about three quarters of an inch to an inch we've had those scrapes last for five six seven years um, before we've had to change them and so it and it's crazy we have footage of bucks mature bucks five six year old bucks that go up to those and after they leave their scent on it they literally move their antlers away from the scrape the licking branch and keep walking as if it's sacred or something they they just left their scent it's a form of communication and so it's really cool to watch the behavior of the bucks around there you can you know they get aggressive for about 10 days out of the year maybe another week during the second rut but other than that and we might have some snap but for the most part um they're leaving them alone they leave their scent they might play with them hard here and there during the peak of the rut or right at the pre-rut or something but for the most part it's crazy to see the number of bucks we have that literally move their head away from it to walk around and they know exactly of course how wide their antlers are uh, just to not touch it with their antlers after they left their scent so um, we usually put them in definitely on a flat surface um, within shooting distance of the stand location and i'll start those a lot of times in may june july and clear it out three four feet kick it down to where i'm kicking out roots and everything with my feet um, sometimes I'll actually pee on the scrape when I leave. Sometimes I don't. And and then we put a camera on it and see what happens. Yeah. It's interesting. You, uh, I think a key thing to point out is that you're saying that not only do these mock scrapes help you get the pictures to confirm, you know, there's deer here, but you, you, it's been at your experience that this is actually tightening the funnel of deer movement. So not only are you identifying when they're coming through more often because this camera location is so great but it actually is a draw that takes what might have been four trails other buck might have possibly taken in an area and now instead he's almost always taking this one so it's it's Definitely. giving you giving you great great data and then it's tightening and making the data coming through even more consistent because it's an attractive location um so that's yeah, and in two two things with that two markets what's cool is we've had some mature bucks we've never had on a scrape a scrape that's only two months old and they'll literally will see them walking from it 30, 40 feet away with their head pointed right at their nose pointed at the scrape. Like they can smell it or see it at night. They can smell it. They walk right to it and work it like they've been doing it all the time. And it's, it's really cool. And I was just going to mention now, the second cool thing is it's free. Except yeah. for we figured out, I think it was like 30 cents for a parachute cord for rope, yeah. usually on average. <laughs> so Not I mean, too bad. It's, it's next to nothing. We don't use any scent, but it really is cool how they'll see that from a long ways away and just come right into it. Like they've been, you know, first time, it seems like first time anyway. Yeah. So In here's, here's the next question then though. What if someone's listening today on October 27th, 2022 or November 1st or something, and he hears this and he's like, Oh wow, this sounds like a great way to get better trail cam data or, or whatever. We've talked about the various benefits. Um, is there any way to use some portion of your mock scrape strategy still at this point or is it too late i mean what's your what's how would you approach this if you were starting now like you're on a week-long rutcation and you don't have these places all set up but you've got four cameras in your truck and you showed up at your 
lease with a seven day period ahead of you and you're thinking, man, I got to get some intel and maybe for whatever reason you don't have stuff out already. Is there some way to put up new mock scrapes right now, put your cameras on them and and still get some available intel for the next few days? Or is it too late for all that? Yeah, definitely. And especially if you're putting cameras out already, to me, the disturbance of putting a camera out, you might as well hang a mock scrape if you can, you know, especially if it's off the branch. Um, We're cutting a fresh vine or a fresh stick. Try not to put your handprint down there. That can stay there for a while, but we've had deer hit it within a day, even with doing that. And then we're putting it right over a trail. Trail we expect to shoot a deer on. We're putting it in shooting distance from that stand. So if you're going in to either do a hanging hunt or put a trail camera out, then you might as well throw a mock scrape out there, especially if it's before a lot of rain. You know, true, if it's if it's moist or, or damp out, then that's, I used to run beagles a lot. Well, that was that was great scenting condition for the dogs. It was damp, wet snow, wet ground. But when it becomes saturated and there's a lot of rain, it washes scent away. So there's that tipping point. So if you see that there's really good rain coming, what a great time to go out right before that rain and put your mock scrapes out and uh, make them look natural, of course. That's why we're using longer vines, longer branches. We always recommend at least five to six feet. But when it's an open, you know, seven, eight feet and uh, about waist high, right in the center of the trail, just scratch up a big area. If I scratch up a big area with a stick, I throw the stick in the brush or I take it out with me. If I clear any branches for that camera, I take those out with me. Try to use the saw, grab with one hand, cut with the other, but um, definitely can get those out. Now, if you're going back into your favorite rut stand in the morning and uh, you haven't been there all year and you, you have high hopes and you're getting into that stand, I wouldn't take the time to go put a mock scrape in that situation. But there's definitely, whether it's on the edge of a food source or you have rain coming or it's in an area that's well away from bedding or feed and you can get into on the side of that movement, uh, add that, make an addition real quick, not leave a lot of scent behind. Um, I would say that in most locations, you'd say about 50% of those areas, you could, you could add a mock scrape right now and get some use out of that if you're careful. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth that raises another question when you bring up this idea of you know going into a spot to hang a camera and in my mind i'm thinking about the impact you're making to hang that camera and one of the you know one of the things you talk a lot about is in a trail camera strategy you know not letting those cameras hurt you by going in to change batteries or SD cards or whatever too often yeah. or at the wrong times. And, and that's why you put these at your hunt locations and only check them when you're going to hunt. But you mentioned this earlier, cell cameras have changed the game. How do you utilize cell cameras to pattern deer differently than with traditional cameras? If at all, do, do you place them in different kinds of places? Do you value that data differently? Is there anything different with your cell cam tactics versus traditional? Um, I'd say, boy, there, I think with the cell cameras, the only way it'd be a little bit different is I have a ten- tendency to place those cell cameras in locations where I can't, where I'm, I'm not going to walk by. I'm only going to go in there and hunt that location. It's a pretty remote. Uh, we have one cell camera here in Minnesota that's in a spot where we just can't hunt. And so we pack it with fresh batteries before the season begins and let it ride. And it's on a natural vine scrape that's hanging down. And uh, so I just, I have that there just because it's good for inventory. It's a cool spot. In fact, Mark, you were there because I threw a track on the side-by-side right down there. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, we had <laughs> down there. It was right I remember that. In that exact location. I say we <laughs> threw a track. I threw a track. Mark and Dylan just, just watched me uh, 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 be an idiot. But anyway. That was uh, a night. But uh, <laughs> it was. We had fun. It but, was. Uh, but regardless, so it was, um, that's the one spot down there, but for the most part, I'm putting my cell cameras in a little bit more invasive areas where it'd be harder for me to change batteries and cards. But overall, um, it might be that 
you know, you have six cameras, three or so cameras, three or none. You have nine cameras, three or so cameras, six or not, or four or five, whatever it is. I put every other one then. So I'm using them purely for inventory. I just want to know more immediate. Obviously, you can make hunting decisions more immediately um, like that. So they're a little bit different than a regular cam. Um, but the regular cam, too, is we get to see that buck behavior. We get to see a little bit clearer picture of exactly where they're coming from and going to. We get to see that behavior around the mock scrape itself, if they're being real aggressive or not. I can tell you about the personality of a buck a little bit differently. Um, you might have one that comes in super aggressive. Can you imagine going out and sitting that evening and using a grunt call or something? Mm -hmm. He might come right into it because he's aggressive. Or you may have one that seems super shy and comes in and just barely touches it, kind of as you can tell he's timid. You can see those things with a video on our, our regular uh, trail cameras um, where we get a 15-second, 10-second, or 20-second clip or a cell camera, you can't see some of those behaviors. So that's why I still like both. Um, they're both both fun, and I think the difference is, you know, with a cell camera, I might use it a little bit more of an invasive spot. Yeah. So here's a scenario that I think has popped up more often now. Well, absolutely, it's popping up more often now that people have cell cameras. There's, you know, let's say we're in the season and we have this plan um, we have a pattern that we've been kind of working on based on all these things that you and I have been talking about. Maybe there's a window when we know he traditionally starts to daylight and we've got some stuff set up to hunt there. And so we're kind of waiting for that window to show up or, or the right conditions to appear, whatever it might be. But what happens if he daylights all of a sudden you get a daylight photo of him and you weren't expecting it. Some do you, how do you value a single daylight photo? Do you say, oh, he daylighted last night, so immediately the next day you got to go in there and try to hunt him, the next morning, the next evening, or if not that, what? how do you use that, or what do you need to see in addition to the simple daylight activity to move? Yeah, it's, I, I really like that strategy because, again, it goes back to the why question. Um, for example, sometimes we'll get a daylight picture of a buck and he's hurrying through and it's on Saturday at nine o'clock and we're next to public land or next to a property where there might be someone hunting invasively. And I'm not saying he's not coming back, but why is he there at that time? Or maybe this is a traditional time. You're waiting every day for him to move in. And then when he moves in and you get that daylight picture, well, if it's daylight, let's say he's going to a spot and it's, um, 6.40 in the morning, it gets shooting light at 5 to 7, so 15 minutes later. I mean, he doesn't have enough time to cross a big field or open hardwoods to get back home. So then you ask, well, what bedding area is he in? And isn't it, you know, I have a stand here, I have a stand there. It's again, it's kind of like you went into this bedding area, you're about 90% sure because you don't think he could go anywhere else in that time frame. He's probably pretty close because he's going to bed soon. And, uh, and then you're going in and saying, well, I have this camera for this, or this stand for this wind and this stand for this wind. You're making that game time decision. No different than, um, you know, he comes out of a certain area in the evening. It's daylight and you think, dang it, that buck was in that bedding area. He had to be because he didn't move where, where he came out of. There's no way he could have moved that far to get to that location from any other direction. He had to be bedding there. Well, then is he going to bed there the next morning? There's a good chance. It's not 100%, but it's, you know, maybe it's 30% chance, 40, 50, 20. It's good chance, whatever it is. So then if you have a stand that you can take appropriate, you know, and that goes back to, I don't 
doesn't matter to me what way the wind's blowing other than I have a stand for this wind. It's on the edge of that bedding area. I'm going to go hunt it, you know, and make that decision that, and so that's how I'll use that. Um, like a, a cell camera to that effect, um, that, that, uh, but you know, I'm trying to think of, uh, trying to think of, uh, I've had stands where, or sits or locations I've hunted specifically for that. It always, it always seems like when I go in there that time that I don't shoot them, I end up shooting them the next day or the next day on a different stand nearby on a, on a funnel, just kind of looking at it like, well, I'll hunt here and then I'll hunt over there with the wind. And, and then all of a sudden you shoot them and it was on a, on a spot. You didn't even have a picture of him. You just knew he was home or you knew he was back on your, your property. You said kind of along those lines, you said something earlier about how, you know, when you know a buck's in the area, either with the cell camera picture that tells you he's here or a historical trend that tells you, well, I know he's in this zone during a five day window or something. You've, you've said this twice, I think where you say you'll take two or three stabs at him and kind of like, you know, poke around, take two or three stabs, poke around. Do you typically do like a cluster of sits like that? Is that a thing like you're doing on purpose? You're not doing an isolated hunt. If you, if you think he's in the area right now, you're going to actually say, well, I'm going to hunt him three days or two days. So you, you, you poke around several options so that eventually one of those three times you intercept him. Uh, Is that, is that, Am I reading that right? Is that on purpose or? Yes. Yeah. There's, Talk about that. Uh, not necessarily on purpose, just more opportunity where typically I'm clustering stands. So if it's good enough for one stand, it's good enough for two or three in this area, this five or 10 acres. And so I can come into this stand from this angle. And then I can come into these two from another angle out of those two, one's a morning stand, one's an evening stand for these reasons. Um, or, or the winds, for example, um, especially around here with the thermals, I can use this with a, um, let's say a south wind. And then because I'm on the side of this ridge, it'll trend downwards at night. So I can use that. But if I use that, that stand in the morning with that south wind, it's going to stay up top on the ridge where the deer are. I don't know if that makes sense, but we'll, we'll have stands like that, that, yeah, this one's better towards morning. This one's better than even, you know, towards evening. And so I might have two or three stands in that spot. And so then I'll look at, yeah, I'm, I'm getting, uh, Northwest wind, cold front winds, they're turning westerly to southwest, and then it's going back to a stable wind for three days of south-southeast. And so they're right there. I know this buck's in the area, and I can go in and hunt them with northwest wind here in the morning, hunt them in a southeast wind here, and hunt them on a southwest morning stand coming in from this one. And so you're kind of chipping away at them, and each one, to me, because you might find that he, you know, let's say you had cameras and you pulled cards later, he walked by two out of three of those stands almost every day in daylight it's just a matter of you making the smart decision of which one to hunt by wind not wrapping yourself up too much that i gotta hunt this stand or that stand just looking at more methodically that you're you're hunting those cluster of stands by opportunity you can get in and out pretty low impact you're not putting one stand in the center of that spot and going all in for broke because then you know you have a lot of you have more probably more chance you spook them than not and now you're now you're done for that buck so I'd rather lightly take a jab here, take a jab there. And, uh, overall your, your, your odds are really good. Um, you know, you're taking a 40% jab every time, yeah. or a 30% jab instead of going off or broke at 70% losing them. If, if the wind is the same, let's say over a three day period and you've, you've determined you want to start taking some shots, 
you you just described a situation there where you would bounce from this stand to one that's a little over to one that's a little over. Is there ever a scenario where you'll have that same wind and you've got three days with decent conditions and you know he's in the zone? Where is there ever a scenario where you say actually just staying in the one spot and hunting all three days in that same spot is the right approach because you know that he might not show today, but I know within the next three days he's eventually going to come through here because I have this pattern. Is that ever a yeah, thing? I think uh depends on the stand location. So some stands are more invasive than others. Um, where you know getting down here, it's a little risky getting in or out. And so in that case, you might you might take a different approach where, yeah, he, you have this cluster stands here. You go in there and hunt it, but it was pretty invasive. Maybe even spooked a doe or a fawn or something else, you know, something that ran. A um, couple does that come in, a young buck you think, man, I, I might've buggered this area up. So instead of just going back and sitting in there, I'd rather go on a, an adjacent stand that might be 200 yards away, 300 yards. Well, if I spooked him here, maybe and it was light, meaning like I didn't spook him. I spooked another deer kind of buggered up that area. Maybe I'll go 200 yards over there to that bedding area, the backside of that bedding area, because I can hunt with that same wind, different approach, and he'll be none the wiser. So if I spooked him in this location, he'll probably be over there. I had a spot I went in this year and I've hunted the stand five times. It's actually a blind down in the bottom where we get away with, once we're there, we get away with northerly winds. It's a pretty cool spot. Usually go down there and I, I haven't spooked any deer. And so I went down there this time and sure enough, there's a doe up high, spooked him. There was um, a really nice mature buck down in the, the draw uh, to my right, about 60 yards away. I spooked him. He went right up the other side watched them. Uh, I think I know what buck it was. And then I got down to the blind and there's a deer blowing at me on the other side. Yes. Well, the very next night, that main buck I was after, and this is, that was a bad one. That was really bad <laughs> for, <laughs> for, uh, sits for me. I don't normally spook a lot like that. So it was really bothering me. I just looked at it like, I'm just going to relax here in the blind and have a nice night. Yeah. And, uh, didn't see any deer. And, um, but the very next night, um, on a, Spot about 250 yards away on a water hole that buck his name is Bo he showed up on that water hole which happened to be I think the 15th of or 16th of October so it wasn't that long ago 16th he was on the 16th there where I buggered him up on the 15th and so maybe buggered him up but it kind of and then that was the last time we saw him there Dylan and I sat there last night we didn't see him we haven't had any other trail camp pictures of him there we haven't seen him around any any other location so it makes you wonder that bump him there and and then I've had opportunities like that where, you know, if I would have been thinking and it was the right win, maybe I could have gone over and hunted that adjacent stand and that would have been a good play. So you're not forcing it in the same spot, especially being spooked. But then you have those other stands where you go in, you don't spook anything. You feel really good about your act. And that's where it kind of goes back. You get back, if you're hunting with some, some buddies, you get back and, you know, it's cool to talk about what you saw, but what did you spook? You know, that's a really good question is what did you spook? Where'd they go? Where'd they run? And, uh, and that's often is just as important as, as what, what you saw in an area, but if you get in and out really clean and you feel good about it, I definitely hump that stand three days in a row if it's the same wind. So it really, really depends on the stand location, the sit, what happened on the sit. Yeah. This whole idea of what did you spook brings to mind another kind of situation I'm often in where I'm thinking about, you know, usually not always, but usually you have to give up something you have to sacrifice something like every time you take a hunt 
you're always there's always the risk of educating deer. There's always the risk of your your wind's going to blow somewhere, right? There's always something. Um, what is the scenario when you are building out a pattern and figuring out where you want to take a stab at and when you want to take it a stab at a deer? What's the scenario, the data point or set of data points that you would be willing to like swing for the fences, knowing that you're going to have a high impact? Like it's a spot that it's going to some deer will know you're there. You have to push into the interior. You have to go into a spot that's tough in, in some reason or way. What do you need to see to make you confident in that? What are the pieces of data or circumstances where you're willing to do that? It's uh, more timing. So I wouldn't do that um, for a general set or strategy, uh, meaning that I think a box in there. So I'm going to go do, you know, I'm going to go sit in a stand that I know that's there or whatever and take a chance. Um, I would look at it like, um, it's, I have nine days of rotation in the last two or three days. Um, I know this buck is in this bedding room or bedroom. I can do, go do a hanging hunt. It's going to be a little bit invasive or risky. Um, and I'll go kind of all for broke and go in. So it'd be more of a timing where, um, I'm there for it's October 15th. And I'm not coming back until the 6th of November. I can afford to be a little risky because I have three weeks of forgiveness uh, for the local deer herd. Um, So I'm looking at it more like that. Not that this is an actual option on the table. Uh, For me, it's not. I don't want to be risky like that. I want to live to hunt another day. Kind of going back to the private land thing. Yeah. Where on private land, it doesn't matter if you have 500 acres, 200 acres, 145 if you make mistakes, you can really mess up that property where public land, I can just go somewhere else. So public land's a different story. Where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more invasive when I know my time is limited and running out um, on, a, on a private land parcel. Public land, on the other hand, that's a little bit different because if you're scouting public land a lot and you know, you know several good spots and you know you might have several good bucks that you're familiar with or, or maybe good spots that have a good bucks, maybe you don't even know what bucks are in there. Then I can go in in the morning and you're looking at like, man, those public land hunts, you might not be able to afford to let a spot just mature all season. And you go in there at the perfect time in early November, you might want to hit that hard in early October. You might want to hit it again. You might have more pressure. So deer are being moved around a little bit more. And so public land is different. I'd be a little bit more aggressive. And then, and then, you know, of course you have some of the areas where you might have, a small parcel surrounded by ag in some of the big buck rich areas, Kansas, Kentucky, Iowa, Western Illinois. And you look at it like, I know this area always holds mature bucks. You go in there and you spook a buck out. Well, another one just takes its place in the next three or four days. I don't have those areas to hunt, but there are areas like that. Then you can be aggressive too. You can go in there. And so, so again, kind of back to the why, the when, um, there's a lot of different conditions, but and for me personally, in my general hunting, I don't push, I don't push it or take chances because, um, it'll have a, a devastating effect on the property so much so that even, um, when we go get deer, uh, we go get them after dark. If I, if it's cold enough and I shoot a buck and I have them on the ground during gun season, um, even bow season, and he went into a certain bedding area, um, and it's nine o'clock in the morning, if I can sneak out, I will. If not, I'll stay there till dark. We'll go in there, with, leave the machine running, voices low. You're just trying to do anything you can on that private land not to spook deer. And, and so 
hope that makes sense. You know, I think there's yeah. a case to be aggressive, but not as a general strategy, unless you're on public land. But it's completely different. But then you might have some of those areas that, you know, it's your back backdoor public land, or this is where you go hunt public land in Michigan. Well, you might want to look at it like, you know, you're going in a wage. You're not seeing a lot of other hunters. You, know, you can almost look at it like you're managing that area as if it was a big private land chunk. Yeah. Yeah, that, that does make sense for sure. I I want to I want to start tying a ball on this and wrapping it up so you can get out and uh, get your your packing ready for your big trip. Um, so just a couple quick last questions. One thing that's that's more of a general question, but I I have forgotten to ask you about it. You know, we've talked through the sign that you're seeing. We've talked through the historical trends that you're observing and keeping tabs of. We've talked through how you're getting pictures of these deer and and how that helps you pattern them. But what we haven't touched on is, is how do you actually actually keep track of all this data and organize it? Do you, do you write any of this stuff down in a journal? Do you have a spreadsheet or anything where you track deer sightings and observations or daylight photos or anything? Do you have a way you organize your photos on your computer? Is there anything like that that helps you keep track and analyze all this stuff? Mark, this is going to be um, not helpful uh, to your <laughs> listeners. And I'll, and I'll say this. Um, uh, my memory is really good. Um, where I remember certain box, certain times of the year, uh, leaves or no leaves, early season, late season, uh, morning, evening, during the day. Those, those things really stick out, stick out the sign that goes with it. I see it like a big puzzle in my head. And it's kind of like when I go to a client property, there's client parties. I could just about redraw my first property I went to, drew it on graph paper with a pencil and ruler back in 05 in the eastern side of the UP. And I, there's things like that that stick in my head. I would read a history book in high school and get to the end of the page and have to reread it. I don't even know what I just read. And uh, Hunting Magazine, I could tell you, and I bet you the same way, or I could tell you just about to the page number where a certain ad was on a Field and Stream magazine when I was 10. <laughs> That's awesome. And, so like, it doesn't help because I don't keep journals. I don't, um, you know, use any fancy software. We had some software back in the day for keeping track of bucks and where they were. And, and it wasn't that it was a bad software. Is this that for me, well, you know, me with like sponsors, partners, products, I don't use them unless I don't, I don't partner with somebody unless I'm going to use the product. And, and we don't have like product days where we just go out and take videos of a bunch of sponsored stuff. We, we actually use it. And so if I'm not going to use it like that data collection for Carol camera, then it wasn't a good partner to have. And so it doesn't matter how much money they give me, I, I'm not going to do it. Um, so that was kind of, it's, it, it is bad. I, for me, um, if I had to organize it in my head, it would be certain colors or letters for certain bucks and where I've had pictures of them in the past, I'd probably change the color. This is something I thought about in the past would be cool to do, but I'd probably change the color to the frequency. So if it was red, he's there all the time. If it's yellow, he's not there that much. If it's green, you know, I'd have different colors so that I could look at a map and see those hot spots of where that buck would be the most. But it's kind of like I already have those in my head where he's at. And then it comes back down to that cluster of stands in this 30 acres or this edge. And if I know he's in that 30 acres, I'm going to chip away at him on the outside with the right wind and those stands. And it's, it's amazing how, if you, it's the, the little things, if you're 
if you're being smart, how you hunt, you're not making a lot of noise, you're blending into the woods. Um, you can even get away with a little bit less strategy and still be very consistent on shooting those target bucks just because you're not buggering them out and you're hunting safe and you're making smart decisions on when to go in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, so yeah, I, like I said, it's probably not going to help your listeners. So, but it's just, it's kind of, um, I think we can get so bogged down in those details. It's information over, overload. I'm the type of personality that I keep those in my head. If I wrote them down and, and made charts or graphs to me, it would almost take the fun out of it, but that's me. Yeah. That's just my personality. I'd rather spend more time scouting or having friends over sitting around the fire. I, I don't know. You know, it's more, um, to some people that's really cool. You know, like they, they love doing that. And I don't blame, I have a friend, Tim, he records, and he's a really close friend of mine up in the UP of Michigan, up in Marquette, Michigan, but Tim keeps a journal and he records literally the weather, the movement, how many hunters were on the land, what deer he saw, where they came from. And, and imagine the history that he could look back on 20 years from now, 30 years, his grandkids. So, you know, I'm missing out on some of that stuff. I know. Well, I can tell you as one of those people, as one of those crazy people, sometimes it can lead to some stress and over analysis. So there's pros and cons. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, there's already, I mean, you know, it's, we're both really busy with what we do. It's kind of like, you gotta, you gotta balance what, uh, yeah. You make a priority and what you don't. It's not that you don't have time, it's just you spend your time on almost a list of priorities. So yeah, gotta, which gotta pick and even choose. This podcast, you know, like you said, we're we're getting ready to go in, but I always I always love talking to you. So it's kinda like when Mark Kenyon calls, <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna do a podcast. And they you know, we get requests for podcasts all the time, but I've always enjoyed the history with you and and talking about this stuff because um it always leads us down a rabbit hole of a uh, good rabbit hole of um, a lot of detail and strategy that uh, some people either gloss over or they just don't care to talk about or really relate to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I really, really, appreciate really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, uh, and I too really enjoy how we can geek out and, and get into this level of stuff. So let's just do one last question yeah. and then get you out the door. Sure. Yeah, if, sure. if you had to, write down like if i had a stone tablet in front of you like a big chunk of granite and i gave you a big old piece of metal that you could scrape you could engrave some words into the stone tablet and i was going to say jeff write for me your top three rules for patterning bucks you can write these things in stone and everyone will see for the rest of time jeff sturgis's keys to patterning bucks you've got three things you're going to write on this stone tablet, we're going to stick it on top of a mountain and every deer hunter in Wisconsin and Minnesota has got to make a pilgrimage to it and see this to help them kill deer in the future and many other States as well. What would you engrave on that stone tablet, Jeff? Three, three main rules. I put an asterisk down the bottom. Mark Kenyon only allowed me three, <laughs> <That's what I'm, laughs> but, but anyway, it's uh, that really tough because I'm, I'll, I'll think of things tomorrow when I'm driving to where we're hunting, it's going to be, but, um, I know the, one of the first things is look in the past almost more than you look in the future. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is look for historical sign, look for historical presence. Um, you're looking for this historical patterns. Those historical patterns, uh, might be about you new, or it might be in a new area and you're finding different ages of rubs and the presence of scrapes 
and known that multiple bucks have used this over a number of years. And so I think sometimes we look forward so much and we think we're planning all these great, making these great strategies. And we forget about all this stuff that's been there for two or three years behind us. And second, one of the things, these are three things that's popping in my head is the second thing is really um, learn to hunt like a predator. And one of the ways to do that, and I know this sounds corny, is to really imagine the deer had guns. You know, would you, would you use that stand, whether it was noisier or you stick out, would you use that stand if the deer had a gun? And does it allow you to hide? Are you really hiding? Um, would you sit in that area and take that chance around that deer if that deer could shoot you if it knew you were there? Um, your approach, in and out, how... How would you hunt different if you had to be more like a sniper on a hill? How would you, how would you ambush? I think about a mountain lion or a cat sitting on a ledge and the unsuspecting prey that goes by. I think that's kind of cool. That's the way yeah. I like to hunt. Now, the guys in Pennsylvania, they made fun of us from Michigan for coming out and sitting. They call us sitters and where they like to walk and still hunt. And, and they shot bucks too. So it was just, that's how I like, I like to be blend into the woods, be a part of the woods. And then you get to, kind of soak in everything too you're not an obtrusive unwanted guest you're you're part of the woods and then you can to me you can enjoy it more so you know first of all look look in the past second um, really blend and then third when you do choose to hunt really choose to hunt by um, picking the conditions this is something that I had to do in the early 90s because I had two weeks vacation I could take a half day off at a time and and I didn't have and then when it got into kids in the early 2000s I had to hunt for two or three days at a time. So I had to pick my days. I was, I was lucky as it got later. I was a real estate appraiser for 11 years on my own business. So I kind of slant my hunts towards the good weather and the good days where I thought deer would move. And so that's been a gift to me to be able to do that because it doesn't matter like if it's a weekend you have, well, I could take a Friday or a Monday. Well, just slant it towards the best weather days. If the best weather day is Monday, kind of look at a black and white. That's when I'm going to go. And maybe Saturday stinks for the weather. So spend some time with the family. Yeah, you get less hunting time, but you're able to spend time with your family and friends a little bit more too. Maybe at work, maybe you're able to impress your boss a little bit more because you said, hey, you know what? I'll come in on Saturday. And you, do you mind if I take Monday off instead of Friday or so? Whatever. But you can slant it a little bit. And so not, you know, not holding, I, I talk about this all the time that it, you know, people say you can't kill them from the couch. I think that saved more deer, more bucks, than any other phrase in, in the history of hunting because people look at it like, well, I'm just going to go sit in that stand 10 days in a row. And what you find is there's a diminishing return every time you sit there. And, uh, and so if you, if you really look at the past, if you learn to blend and then you learn to really pick your approach on those high percentage days, then to me, you combine those right there. And even if you're hunting on a poor property poor habitat property, smaller property, a little bit more pressured land, then you're going to be successful a lot more than, than you're not. I love it. I love so those it. Three, those three things. Those are good. Those are good things. And, uh, and I know that if, if folks visit those granite tablets and read through your top three rules, they're going to say to themselves, man, I want more from this Jeff guy. Uh, Jeff, where can folks go to get more <laughs> or, from or you? Less. Because uh, um, well, y- your stuff's great. Yeah, it's right. really some of the best out there. Well, I appreciate that, Mark. I really do. And you can tell, I mean, I, I live this stuff. So this is what I do, you know, wh- whether it's with clients um, around 100 a year 
um, being in the woods hunting. And I like to do a lot. I think we're going as a family down to hunt public land in Ohio this year for their gun season opener. Um, I, I like to do a lot of do it yourself. And so that comes through. And, and for that, I feel like even on client properties, we get to learn every time we go on another client. And so then when I think I, I learned something, I love to teach that. So the YouTube channel, uh, whitetailhabitatsolutions.com. Um, we have over a thousand videos now on there uh, for people to cruise through. I try to categorize them. So like you mentioned, mock scrapes, I think we have almost 60 mock scrape videos in that playlist. So I try to put them in playlists. Uh, advanced hunting strategies is probably the largest. There might be a couple hundred in there. Of course, food plots, habitat improvement. I also try to spend uh, quite a bit of time uh, and I go through streaks on this, depending on how much time I have, but Instagram, uh, Whitetail Habitat Solutions there too. And then Dylan and I, who Dylan, he goes to clients too. He's worked with me since 2016. Great dude. He's independent contractor works for, oh yeah, he's a great dude. And you, you know, Dylan, uh, Dylan's worked with you, Meat Eater. Um, you know, he's worked with a lot of different hunting industry uh, personalities and people and entities and companies. And so, but um, Dylan and I, he, I work with them about once a week shooting videos. And he sits in a tree with me too. We plan and strategize a lot together. And we started a podcast. And, um, you know, we've talked to you about being our first guest. We're hoping that'll work out here in the next couple of weeks. I'd love um, it. But, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. We've already talked about a topic with you <laughs> to talk about. So, but uh, kind of a, uh, a blend of Western do-it-yourself, whitetail hunting and hunting industry questions and stuff. So, um, you know, get into a talk about that. But bottom line is um, we've shot three, uh, not shot, we actually have recorded them, but we've um, filmed them and recorded them. And those should, those should be on my website. We have whitetailhabitatsolutions.com. There I have over 600 whitetail articles I've written, strategy articles, and we'll be hosting the podcast. It's supposed to be done by about October 31st, the 1st of November. And we'll try to consistently put out about one a week on those. So that's, that's another way. Uh, you know, of course, you have books, web classes. We go visit people, site visit. We even sell seed now, WHS Wildlife Lens. But again, you know, I have over 1,000 videos on YouTube. We're going to have the podcast, over 600 articles. And um, that's all for free. And so I don't hold anything back. Um, it's, you know, you try to, when I've learned something, I keep a running tab of notes. I might have shown you, Mark, but it's a couple thousand long in my, in my phone. And it's, um, you know, when I think of something, I'm on a client property, I get excited and geeked out about it. I can't wait to tell people. And so I do that through Instagram, YouTube, uh, now the podcast, books, writings, whatever. Man, it's awesome. We've all, we've all benefited from it. So, uh, on the, on behalf of everybody listening here and all the folks who've watched your videos, uh, read your books, read your articles, uh, let me just for, I'm sure you've heard a million of these, but let me just do it one more time. Thank you. Well, Mark, thank you. You know, I, I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's been, uh, it's been fun, uh, rewarding, you know, this entire process, but, uh, most of all, I hope, uh, you know, I always say if the information's not helping anybody, then it's, know why I put it out. And yeah. so, um, I love hearing that feedback. I appreciate it. I love hearing the feedback in the comments on YouTube and, uh, in Instagram too. Um, YouTube tells me I answer about 10,000 comments a year on YouTube. <laughs> so I try, I try, I try to answer as many as possible. Um, but, uh, you know, the whole, the whole mission is to try to help. So yeah. I hope it comes through and I, I really appreciate that feedback. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Well, Hey, you're uh, you're doing an awesome job, but now I've got one last thing for you, Jeff. 
You need to hang up this okay. phone, finish packing, and go <laughs> kill a buck in Saskatchewan. All right, my friend. I know, that's that sounds really good, Mark. We're, that's uh, I thought that was a dream hunt I'd go on, and and when I'm in you know ten years from now or something, but um, hunt wise made it happen this year. Uh, it was a random call in January. They let me know uh, Jen's going too, and um, Dante's actually coming to film. We found out that in the wow. last couple of days. He works with Matthews, my stepson, and he uh, they gave him time off unpaid, so we're helping him out with that and getting him. He's going to film us, and so we're leaving at six a.m. It's kind of a dream hunt. I've always wanted to hunt those chocolate horn monsters up north. And, yeah. And uh, we're going to be able to do so here uh, pretty soon. So very, very fortunate. All right. Well, I'm going to be crossing every one of my fingers and toes for you. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. I'm hoping to just see a giant. That'll be, that'll be nice. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be awesome So just to be up there. That sounds awesome. All right. That's it, my friends. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me. Follow along with my story over at Wired to Hunt on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Wired to Hunt page over on the Meat Eater website. That's themeateater.com slash wired. Uh, you can follow along on Facebook, uh, our YouTube channel. We've got the Deer Country Show over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Be sure you subscribe to the Meat Eater newsletter, which you can do over on that Meat Eater website. You'll get uh, a weekly email with an update on all the content we've got. What I'm trying to say is we're putting out a lot of deer hunting stuff. For you folks who love deer hunting, just like me. But uh, it's time to hunt. So let's stop talking. Let's get in the woods. Best of luck. Have fun. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.